Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Tributes pour in as fans pay tribute to Christy Dignam, the Aslan frontman who's died today at the age of 63. I have fallen down so many times I don't know why, don't know where Don't care less, it's all the same The President and the Courthouse Donald Trump appears in court charged with dozens of federal crimes will have reaction from both sides of the Atlantic I think it's a rigged deal here. We have a rigged country. We have a country that's corrupt. We have a country that's got no borders. We have a country that's got nothing but problems. We're a nation in decline, and then they do this stuff. And later, are data centers using too much of our electricity, and should there be a moratorium on them? Well, you can join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Ireland has lost one of its most treasured voices. Christy Dignam, the charismatic frontman of Aslan, has passed away at the age of 63. With hits like Crazy World and This Is, Aslan brought a connection with their audiences, becoming anthems that defined a generation for many. But it was his world outside of music, his struggle with addiction, his devotion to charitable causes and his brave fight against cancer that endeared him to so many more people around this country. A music career spanning more than 40 years, Christy Dignam will be remembered as the charismatic performer and popular lead singer with the Irish rock band Aslan. Born in May of 1960, Christy Dignam grew up in Finglas in Dublin from a working class background with a flair for music and performing. In 1982, he became the lead singer of Aslan, which went on to have significant success despite his personal struggles. Their seven albums saw a number of major hits, possibly the best known, released in 1994. However, despite their popularity in the charts and sellout albums, band never reached the same success internationally. Breaks in the band's momentum were often put down to Christie's struggles with first addiction and later ill health. Then I had to ring, come home one day and say, Catherine, listen, I'm out of Aslan, I'm after getting sacked and I'm a heroin addict. And she had to take all that on board and take back the reins of being the provider. Over the years, Christy Dignam spoke openly about his issues, opening up about abuse, addiction and dealing with cancer after being first diagnosed in 2013. 
In 2017, Christy Dignam worked on a charity single to raise money for homeless people in Ireland. And more recently, the people of Ukraine, following Russia's invasion of the country last year. The band re-released their hit This Is, singing with a choir of Ukrainian people in Ireland to help raise funds for the Red Cross working in Ukraine. Just the fact that we took them away from the drama and their lives for this, these few hours that we've been together was amazing. And you could feel the energy. You could see that you'd forgotten about all that terror, you know, for a few minutes. And just for that was worthwhile. Along with his good deeds, Christy Dignam's ill health was also widely reported last year, with him spending six months in Beaumont Hospital. Since December, however, Christy has been cared for at home by his family with the support of a palliative care team. In a statement released in January of this year, the Dignam family thanked everyone for keeping Christy in their thoughts and prayers and asked for privacy. Christy Dignam passed away at the age of 63, survived by his wife Catherine and daughter Kira. Well, let's get more on the reaction to Christy Dignam's death. Our news correspondent, Zara King, is here with me in studio. And I'm also joined by Marty Miller from Radio Nova. You're both very welcome along to the programme. Um, to come to you first, Zara, you were at Vicar Street today. You're outside, you're engaging reaction from fans to, yeah. to this news. Really an outpouring um, from music fans, but everyone in the country to the passing of Christy. Uh, and we heard it from the president, Michael D. Higgins, mm -hmm. and fellow musicians, um, everyone really... Um, you know, paying sympathies with the family at this time. Yeah, Claire, and it's clear kind of from those tributes that came through that everyone really loved him. And actually, it was interesting to read the first tribute, which was actually from, very fitting, from the president. It came in very, very quickly after that announcement of his death. And uh, one of the things that I suppose Michael D. Higgins pointed to in that statement was the idea that the Aslan songs, they were part of a sort of a feeling, a connection that people had and that uh, in some ways, um, paraphrasing now, but that, you know, those songs sort of were the soundtrack to a generation that everyone sort of has a memory of, of what those songs really meant to them. Uh, in that statement, Michael D. Higgins just saying that for the last 40 years Christy and his bandmates have made an enormous contribution in cultural life in Ireland and Christy was a central part uh, of that connection and he says as a result people in nearly every town in Ireland will have their own memories of seeing them play and will feel like they had personally had a connection uh, with Christy and that really is the impact he had and you know we went to Vicar Street um, this evening and there was queues of people going in to see the Goo Goo Dolls are playing in Vicar Street tonight and some people in the queue hadn't actually heard the news and it was, it was actually terrible in a way because we were sort of breaking the news to them and their reaction was just so they were devastated even though they knew that he had been sick for a while um, I suppose people thought he kept coming back didn't he and I think they sort of thought that you know this was unbelievable to think that he, he had passed and let's just take a listen to some of those reactions this evening It's really sad Chrissy's just an icon I feel really quite choked up about it, to be honest, yeah. Um, Aslan's one of the first Irish bands I ever identified with and I just feel really quite brokenhearted about it. Very, very sad. He was a brilliant singer, brilliant man, and I'm so sorry to hear it. Yeah. What would have been your memories of him and the music? Um, crazy world, crazy world. Every time anyone thinks of a sing-song, or they always play an old Aslan song, and, you know? He was just, uh, he was a great man. I have fallen down so many times. I don't know why, don't know where, don't care less, it's all the same. 
So, Claire, uh, that was just Paddy Kennedy that you heard singing off the back of that clip there. And, you know, Paddy sings in the pub next door to Vicar Street. And he was just talking about how Christy Dignam had such a big impact on him as a singer himself, you know. And he just talked about how he was so passionate about the music. And he said, you'd always do an Aslan song and it would always go down great with the crowd. So, really, you know, the, the sense that you get from people in Dublin tonight is that he was a son of Dublin and they just loved him. They loved him dearly. Um, Marty, to bring you in on this, like clearly Christy had an incredible connection with his fans, but it kind of went beyond that Dublin base as well, didn't it? He, he sort of had a place in everyone's heart. He was quintessentially Irish and, and, and very much um, endeared himself to everyone. I think the fact that Christy, just that name alone, Christy, you know, is the top story on your show tonight, The Tonight Show, is a huge huge part of who he was in Ireland, right? The other thing was, Zara there mentioned uh, tributes from the president, but when I was getting a little bit of makeup on earlier outside, Kira doing the makeup was telling me and showing me photos of her granny with Christy. They lived kind of on the, the, the same area and, you know, behind us in the house. And so there was always stories. So he went from the president to literally the old lady next door. And I think that speaks volumes yeah. and that Christie is going to be remembered right across our country for the next few days, certainly, certainly for the next few days. Yeah, it was the, it was the charisma, really, that, 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 that went with him and also his, his incredible stage presence. I know there was a, an image that you wanted to share, Marty, mm. uh, Christie in the throes of a performance. I think we can um, possibly see it now. It was so typical of him, really, wasn't it? The consummate front man, but also, you know, mesmerised, literally Look, being on stage in front of his audience. But not only is that an amazing photograph, a friend of mine, Niall Fennessy, took that photograph. It's... But when you think of the day that's in it with Christy passing, the light, there's so much imagery there, isn't there? Mm. And it's his hands out to the light. It's, it just speaks volumes, I feel, you know? And yes, it's Christy doing what he loved to do, which was perform live. And by God, he was good at it. Yeah. He was good that's at it. That's a great it. shot, isn't it? And he was a Incredible. performer yeah. right until he could perform no more. You know, the voice started to leave him and things like that, I feel, when you heard him on the radio with Tuberty and but stuff like that. He performed in the hospital for some of his of fellow patients. We, yeah. That story was one of the, the lovely stories that we heard in recent times, wasn't it? That people would say he put on a performance while people were waiting for their treatment. That, yeah. you know, he was always sort of entertaining up until the very end. Very much. He was yeah. a showman. He truly was all about the show. Even though I met him a few times, I interviewed him on the radio and things like that. But it was all very off the air. It was all very, ah, oh, grand. You know, it was all very low key. There was yeah. no entourage. There was no real mess. And he and Joe would rock in with the guitar. Mm. They would do their thing and they would just leave again. Do you know what I mean? Wow. It, it was all very understated in some ways, Wouldn't even it though it was so... Yeah. Huge. And one of the big interviews you did with him, Marty, was actually the comeback, because the band split, um, and it has been talked about Christie's um, addiction issues and the resilience there, yeah. that, you know, despite the band splitting up and, and yeah. everything he went through in his personal life and all of that trauma, they could come back together. Yeah. What, what did they say on that comeback? And how did Christie talk about uh, the part addiction had also played in his life? So that would have been in the early 90s, 93. Um, they, they, they kind of came back together. And I remember just being around. I actually didn't do that interview. I was just in and around that radio station where this was all happening. And I remember just thinking, 
my God, I'm actually witnessing something very cool here. I was just a panel op, actually. I was just pushing the buttons on the, on the sound desks and stuff like that back then. And I remember, you know, Christy walking in, meeting the host of the, the radio programme with uh, Billy, Billy McGuinness, and the, there, was, there was a camaraderie there that was very, very evident, you know. And I think 40 years later... It's just such a shame that they didn't get to do that big three arena 40 years celebration, which sadly now probably will happen without Christie and will just be a, a look back and a tribute and a in, in memoriam thing, you know? Yeah, and let's talk about the tributes as well, Zara, because yeah. um, as you say, you were at the Vicar Street venue where he played so many times. Yeah. Um, no doubt without Christie the band will come together. There's likely to be tributes. There's so many fans out there, mm. musicians. We heard um, a flavour of it tonight who will want to remember Christy and everything that he mm. has done as part of the, the, the Irish rock fabric, really, within this country. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, I, I don't want to admit, I think, you know, I, all of us reached to Spotify today to listen to, you know, Crazy World. And I think it's kind of, um, you know, I think that we'll probably see it at the top of the Irish chart, I suspect, over the coming <laughs> days. And right. that's just the reality of yeah. it, isn't it, really? That people reach to enjoy the music at a time like this. Um, and, you know, I was talking to uh, Harry Crosby, who owns Vicar Street earlier this evening, and he was, um, you know, he's sort of, you know, he's obviously that it's his friend you know and they, they've been you know they've known each other for many many years and have so many memories that almost it's hard to just pick one and uh, you know Harry was sort of joking saying that uh, they had planned to perform at some stage together that he was going to bring Harry up on stage <laughs> and uh, I don't know Harry said oh I was going to do it but you know but I think it's you know there's just so many. It seems like, actually, and you could probably speak more to this, I suppose it seems like that was a lovely time in Irish music as well when Aslan was really at that peak and everything. Oh God, and it, yeah. it seems like it was just such a wonderful, doesn't it? A real, a real I, I think thing. I could hear a clip of um, Harry from, from yeah. your, your interview with Harry earlier. He was a very, very genuine, old-fashioned, proper, nice man. And he was one of the reasons that this place has become so famous. He was our, my friend. He was, yes. And he will be sorely missed here. And I'll tell you what, we'll make sure that his memory is, is kept properly alive. I'm going to do something really special here to mark his passing. Really special. So, um, of course, there will be tributes um, in venues up and down the country where, where he performed. Marty, it's interesting that you were saying, uh, and you're mentioning as well, Zara, that, you know, there's a place in, in every town around the country. Mm. They were great. They were a brilliant touring band as well. They were a um, hard-working showbiz band. And certainly when yeah. I was in college in DCU, it was the highlight of Rag Week when I was there to have Aslan <laughs> playing. They're brilliant. But they were kind of on home turf as well there, um, you know, on the north remember, side of the city. You've got to remember as well when they, they went down under, um, I seem to recall a time when Aslan did a, you know, a bit of a stint in Australia oh, playing wow. like ga clubs and, and things like that. Yeah. But masses of Irish would turn out to see them. I mean, the question there is, were they always playing to an Irish audience? or how, so, they how were did, very much an Irish band. How did they do beyond, beyond Ireland? Because they did go stateside, didn't they? And they did tour. Yeah, well, there was certainly a little bit of UK exposure. I, I don't know the answer as to why they never made it to the great, great stages of, you know, other Irish bands. I don't know the answer to that because, to me, watching Aslan perform, it was just a great show. Christy, he not only sung every word, his whole body sung every word, you know, with the hand movements, the gestures, everything that went on. He put his whole body into a performance. But I, I don't understand why it never seemed to take off elsewhere 
and it was very much an Irish crowd that they would play to in the mm. UK, uh, obviously around Ireland and then in, in Australia and stuff. And I, you, you mentioned Harry Crosby there, that album there, Made in Dublin, that was all done at Vicker Street. Oh, wow. And I was, um, I was in this warehouse um, a few years ago. This must have been about 2017 when all of the lads were lined up at a desk like this, signing 4,000 copies of this album oh, wow. to send out to fans. Like, and I remember walking into that room and saying, Christy, how you doing? Ah, Grant. You know, writing away, a bit of a laugh going on. But he was just all about doing that sort of stuff. Do you know what I mean? And, get, and getting... It was a big deal to get made in Dublin pressed on vinyl as well. Yeah, and you, you get the sense that um, he was so kind of close to all those neighbours, very close to that fingerless bass, knew where he came from. Oh, and yeah. certainly that was pivotal, like, to have you know, a hero like that in your midst at the time when, when Aslan was big, you know, in the 80s and 90s, when they really came to the fore. And he told stories. He told stories about the local area through song, you know, and he told stories about his life through song. There was, um, you know, some album titles and stuff which talked about a van that used to visit various uh, areas of Finglas that you could go down and buy Frenchies from, which were condoms. You know what I mean? It was like, I think, I think I'm right in saying that. I could be totally wrong. <laughs> you spoke to the people. Yeah. Um, and and of course, the storyteller asked by Claire just to say, I suppose, is what his family mentioned in that statement tonight. And it's lovely that, you know, they, you know, his daughter said, look, let us hold him in our hearts and cherish the remarkable life of the talented singer, great storyteller and amazing person. So I think that storytelling aspect of him is mm. so important to the family that he's remembered like mm. that. Yeah, and, you know, our deepest sympathies tonight to Christie's oh. family, yeah. to his wife, Catherine, his daughter, Kira, and his entire extended family. And of course, Aslan, who've lost a front man and a great friend. Uh, my thanks to Marty and to Zara. Uh, let's take a break now. Coming up next, the former US president in federal court. Donald Trump has appeared before a judge in Miami. We'll have all the latest after this break. Well, Donald Trump spent a lot of his time in his presidency wanting to make history. Well, today, he did that, becoming the first former president to face a federal criminal investigation. He has appeared in the court in Miami in the last couple of hours, pleading not guilty to dozens of federal charges relating to allegedly hoarding government secrets at his Mar-a-Lago resort and frustrating efforts by the federal government to retrieve them. Well, let's get more on what today's historic arraignment means. I'm joined in studio by Harry Brown, senior lecturer at the Technological University in Dublin and Louise Byrne, political correspondent with the Irish Mirror. Um, to come to you first, Louise, on all of this, he was facing 37 charges arising out of his handling of classified documents and today in court, a not guilty plea to each one of those charges. Yeah, and I think this was as to be expected. We saw it in his previous court case as well, that he was adamant that he was innocent. But we were saying earlier, quite serious charges that he has actually been accused of. This, of course, relates to alleged hoarding of very confidential and secret documents that he should have given back when he was no longer president, but he allegedly kept. And these related to things like, you know, nuclear bombs, nuclear plans, all these really serious state secrets that he really should have given back. But like you said, he pleaded not guilty to all 37 of those charges and he was let go. Um, there's very few actual 
punishments for Donald Trump this evening. Um, there was things like there wasn't any travel restrictions placed upon him. Um, he was There was no bail, no conditions to his release. He's not allowed to communicate with witnesses, which you would expect in a trial that is going to go to court now. But um, Donald Trump is defiant as ever, leaving the court and insisting that he's done nothing wrong. OK, so he could leave the court. He could actually make a stop off at a cafe and issue a statement uh, there. He's going to talk further um, at, a, at a golf resort, um, the golf resort. Back which... in my home state of New Jersey later this evening. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, you're saying you're saying this and I'm wondering what we saw the protesters in the gathering outside the mm. Miami court. Fewer numbers than may have been expected yeah. there. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of build up around who would turn up and, and, and how all of that may play out. What's, what's the sense in, in, in the States about what's happening here to see a former president right. and this landmark move to see him up in court on federal charges? Yeah, I think that uh, I don't think that anyone is too shocked that Donald Trump and traditional norms don't have a stable relationship. You know, that Donald Trump is going to do something like bring a lot of boxes home to the uh, from the White House, that he's going to leave them lying around, that he essentially regards himself as above the law, that he's too lazy to hire somebody to go through them and and uh, and sort out what belongs in the National Archives and what he can keep, that he thinks he's still president in a way. Let's keep that in mind. You know, that he, the, the idea that he, he needed to give all of his papers back would have been a real, you know, a, an insult to mm -hmm. someone who thinks that he had the election stolen from him. And I think he legitimately thinks that at some level. I think it doesn't harm him politically very much within his Republican support. I think he's still overwhelmingly the favorite for the Republican nomination. I think it probably harms his prospects, which I don't think were already pretty weak with the country at large. And I think it's not accidental that the kind of the targeting of these charges relates to national security, as, uh, as Louise was referring to. In fact, I think to a certain extent, that's the, that's the kind of case against him. And as a journalist, I think national security secrets should be in the public domain. I just don't think they should necessarily be revealed to you because you booked your wedding reception at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, sitting in a, in a bathroom in front of the shower. Um, yeah. <laughs> as, as those images, quite striking images um, from the Mar-a-Lago resort. It may be the and funniest shows. indictment ever published. It really is a great indictment. And it, it, it's, uh, it legitimately like contains dialogue from recordings that were made of Trump saying, hey, hey, here's this document. I shouldn't be showing you this. No, not too close, not too close. And uh, it contrasts things that Trump said about handling classified information during the 2016 campaign as against uh, how he went and, about it And himself. it makes you wonder as well what he was actually going to allegedly do with those documents, whether it was just showmanship to have them all um, sitting sitting in the bathroom and around um, the house unsealed. Um, I want to bring in Marion McKeown because she was in the courthouse today. Marion, um, um, if you, you can hear us there, let's talk about uh, Trump's demeanour in court. Now, no cameras were allowed inside. How did he come across? As expected, it was, it was not guilty plea to all the charges he faced. That's right, Jay. He, um, he was in the courtroom with his two lawyers, Todd Blanche and, and also um, his other lawyer, who is Chris Kyes. Chris Kyes is a very well-known Florida lawyer. Uh, Trump was not able to get any other lawyers at this point. They both got on the record as his permanent lawyer. Uh, next to his lawyers sat um, Walt Notow, who is, of course, his valet, and his lawyer, Stanley Woodward. And they, they um, I mean, the, the hearing went on for longer than I think people had anticipated. It lasted for about 48 minutes uh, because there were things to go through, but like no contact. Um, you know, he was, he was asked not to have contact or the judge 
the magistrate there, Jonathan Goodman, asked him not to have contact with um, Walt Nuttow about the case. Now, they'll be working together very closely. Nuttow is his valet and his, his co-defendant. So, you know, I mean, but this, this does happen a lot in court cases uh, where you're told not to speak about a case with somebody who's involved in a with you, even if you are in daily contact with them. Um, outside the court was an absolute zoo. As you, I mean, this is Miami, you know, as you, as you probably can imagine. Uh, you had people with pigs' heads on sticks. You had the usual. A lot of these people turn up at the opening of every Trump envelope. I mean, I know from being to rallies, from being at other um, Trump-related court appearances, the same people tend to turn up over and over. That said, there were more there than usual, not nearly as many as were expected. Uh, I think between five and 50,000 were expected. That seems to be quite a leap. Uh, but I would say that there was far less than that. I spoke with Carrie Lake briefly, who has become Trump's most vocal surrogate. She, of course, ran for governor of Arizona and was beaten. She still hasn't accepted that she was beaten. She referred to Katie Hobbs, who is now the governor, Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Drip when we spoke. Um, she's all about saying that, you know, if, if people want to get to Trump, they have to get through her and 75 million NRA members and voters. There's a lot of hyperbole around all this. I mean, generally speaking, it was for the most part good humoured outside. It was for the most part, there were a couple of scuffles, but nothing yeah. nothing too serious. Ah, a lot of people singing, etc. Yeah. yeah, good humoured and what are incredibly serious charges. So, now we're all wondering, how could this impact the presidential run? Um, what are Trump's options at this point? Well, his options in terms of the case, uh, I, there, there are people who think that he could beat this case. Now, I spoke with Dick Gregory, who is the legendary uh, prosecutor for the Southern District in Florida. He prosecuted Manuel Norega. He prosecuted um, Pablo Escobar, various people. And he said that Miami is really not an ideal venue. And he said, because the jurors who would be, who be in that jury pool, he said a lot of them have come from countries and their parents have come from countries where there's a deep, deep distrust to the government and where it's presumed if the government's involved in a case, they're up to no good. So he seems to think that it'll be better in Palm Beach. Now, the judge will be Aileen Cannon, who, of course, was reprimanded pretty severely by the appeals court um, over her handling of the request for a master. And they said she inserted herself into the case where she had no business doing it. Um, the, 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 um, the, the accusations, the charges against Trump, you don't get more serious than this against a former president. For a former president to have 
been so careless with not just nuclear secrets, not just the secrets of U.S. allies, um, but also secrets that, um, that outline America's vulnerabilities in case of attack by a foreign adversary. I mean, this is really, really serious stuff. Uh, potentially, I mean, the, the various um, charges would have up to 20 years in prison. Some of them would have five years for the lesser charges. But in theory, he could be sentenced to 400 years in prison. That won't happen. Um, but, you know, and we're getting ahead of ourselves here. We don't even have a date at the moment for the next court appearance. That will be referred right. over to Aileen Cannon now, okay. the judge who will be running the case. And, and we'll see. You can be sure that they'll try and have it struck out. That there'll be allegations of prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, but, it's, you know, things, things are pretty serious. And it's Will it won't affect his standing with his supporters? If even if he's in prison, in theory, he could run for election, but that won't happen. I suspect uh, they'll run out the clock. Really uh, unbelievable to imagine uh, the potential there, Marion. Thank you for bringing us up to date um, from court proceedings in Miami. We do appreciate it, um, Harry. To come back in, um, you know, on that matter. I mean, the implications of all of this around the run for the presidency. Um, Republicans in a recent poll said. You know, they do believe it to be wholly a political witch hunt. That's how they see it. Mm. And that it wouldn't deter them, certainly, from, you know, voting his way and, and seeing him, helping him get back in the White House in, in 2024. Look, if you remember when Trump first ran in 2016, in the Republican primary debates in 2015 and 2016, he essentially made a virtue of his corruption. He, he looked at all the other Republican candidates and he said, look, I'm a rich guy. I've donated to all these guys before. I know that it buys me access and it buys me influence. That's the world we live in. But don't you want the guy who's got the money as, as opposed to the guy who's begging for the money to be, your, to be your guy? And that's essentially, you know, he continues to kind of to play that character. And I think in, in many respects for the base that is already, you know, essentially alienated from American norms, that the idea that there's going to be a kind of an ongoing spectacle, and as Marion said, a spectacle that he's going to have probably some wins in. He's got a judge that's friendly. He's got a venue that's friendly. Mm -hmm. And he's got a prosecutor who probably is a little overzealous in certain ways that the case has been pursued, potentially. Yeah, and so, so how all of that will potentially play into Trump's hands and also the idea and, and this, the, the narrative that he's putting forward that this is a political witch hunt, that we had Joe Biden with um, documents in his possession, uh, state documents, and, and what's happening there, but all this push, of course, on what Trump was harboring in Mar-a-Lago. I think the juxtaposition there is that when Joe Biden was told he documents, he turned them back. And I think that is probably the crux of a lot of people's arguments is that he didn't try and keep these documents like Donald Trump has. But I mean, it's bananas in a way kind of watching this from the outside. I mean, you have a man, a former president, charged with really serious crimes, leaving the courtroom, going to a cafe where he has hordes of people gathering around him, praying, thanking God for this, what they think is a saviour, if that is Donald Trump, mm. singing happy birthday to him as if he hasn't just walked out of a courtroom. That's and right, he turns 77. It's 77 tomorrow um, and he's this big event now in New Jersey this evening um, where he's threatening to make another speech. Um, so I'm sure we'll hear much more of this later. But I mean, this idea of I'm guilt, I'm not, I'm innocent. This is a plot against me. We heard this all. I was in Doombeg last month when he was here. It was exactly the same. So I think this is a narrative we're going to be hearing for the next couple of years until this election happens. Absolutely. And uh, when we see potential delays to all of these proceedings as well, how long this could potentially drag on for. We will leave that there for now. Lots more after this break as we discuss whether data centre are now using too much of our electricity or is that the price you pay for having a tech economy?
Join us in a few. Data centres have become part of the political conversation over the last number of years, but numbers from the CSO have shown just how much energy they use. Figures show that data centres in the Republic use as much electricity as urban households last year, and the number has gone up 400% since 2015. Well, government and opposition politicians had their say about it today. We can use some of the waste heat from the data centres. We've started the first one out in Tala where that waste heat is um, heating the council buildings, local public buildings. So I'm looking to do the same elsewhere and turn what is a problem into an opportunity. Whatever renewable uh, energy we get, we are going to need for, you know, for homes, for industry, for everything else that has to happen, for hospitals, for schools. Well, Louise Byrne and Harry Brown are still with me. I'm also joined by Christopher O'Sullivan from Fianna Fáil, Darren O'Rourke from Sinn Féin, and Alan O'Reilly, the Customer Experience Manager of Black Knight Solutions. Uh, you may also recognise Alan from Carlo Weather, but he's here in his data centre guise uh, with us this evening. So you're all very welcome along uh, to the programme. Louise, if you may, um, we got political reaction there to these, these CSO figures, which are quite startling. Will they, I don't know whether they will surprise many people because certainly these centres have been right in the spotlight for quite a while now, especially given the focus we're having on energy, on the cost of living crisis and how we're all being told to be more sustainable. Absolutely. And I think we knew that these data centres use a lot of energy, but I do think a lot of people were surprised. I mean, 18% of our total energy consumption last year was just from data centres. That's a 31% increase on last year. And like you said, a 400% increase since 2015. So we've had all the opposition parties today calling for a ban or a moratorium on any new data centres until some kind of government strategy is put in place to really look at how these data centres are being used. Not surprising from the government, they are defending the use. You heard Eamon Ryan there saying there's ways that you can use their excess energy to do things. He's also saying that you have other forms of energy coming on use, like solar power, like wind power, and that will feed into it and that will help things. Taoiseach Leo Varadkar on his way into Cabinet this morning saying that you have to consider the amount of jobs that the tech industry creates in Ireland. So while you might not have a whole lot of people actually employed in the data centres, you have tens of thousands of people working in the tech sector, bringing in billions of euro in tax every year. So he was saying, you kind of have to look at it in the round, very much repeated by Thánis and Micheál Martin. But I don't think the pressure is going to go away. I think especially given the fact that these figures from the CSO came on the same day that Airgrid issued an amber warning saying that energy supply was low. So I don't think this is going to go away. People before profit are bringing back a bill that they had last year, calling for a moratorium on evictions, uh, on data centres. Mm. So I do think it's going to rumble on now for another couple of weeks. Yeah, this is one of these things, uh, Christopher, Christopher O'Sullivan, uh, big tech versus the people, really, when they see these data centres consuming so much electricity when we are all being told to cut back. You know, we have amber warnings, it's summertime. And really, you know, how, how can the government tell us to do one thing and be sustainable? And I think people might be frustrated listening to Eamon Ryan there, um, who, who, who make, who, who, you know, as a Green Party leader, would push that uh, agenda on sustainability, watching our use, especially in the cost of living crisis, and then data centres can do exactly what they want. Yeah, I can I can see uh, why you'd make that point, Claire, and I, I can um, I can see where you're coming from in that. Um, you know, we have a, a situation where um, 
the the uh, it's it, it's a very tricky, I suppose, circle to square f for us. We have to look at the tech sector, the fact that there's 100,000 jobs uh, in the tech se sector, there's 100,000 people employed. Um, at the same time, I can totally understand why why it would stick in people's throat, the fact that while they're making an effort to reduce energy consumption within the household, while we're seeing energy consumption in households go down by 9%, um, the entire uh, usage for data centres matches that of households. It's one-fifth. The, 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 well, people will say, is there any point? No, like the, the, the numbers are eye-watering, but we have to balance this. Uh, and this is, it's time for a rational debate about this. I don't think it's, the, I don't think moratorium is necessarily the, the right route here. I think when we come to sectors where decarbonisation is difficult, for example, the, the tech sector, uh, agriculture, it's very easy to throw out these um, kind of hammer type solutions. For example, in agriculture, we talk about culling the herd. Uh, we need to work with sectors here. We need to work okay, with the, the, the data sector as well. And there are there is a strategy here. I, I heard an accusation by some of the opposition uh, TDs to say that government doesn't have a strategy. We do have a strategy. There is a policy paper there. Um, you know, we have on-site generation at some of these data centers that can actually help in times of of, of uh, low energy. We we also have um, you know there's, there's there's several solutions out there. Minister Eamon Ryan mentioned the whole uh, idea of district heating that has been used at the moment uh, in Tala. Um, and you know you have it's all about where we locate these data centers in the future. And I think the ultimate solution is to to have these data centres located where we bring offshore energy. And sure, I know that's a few years away, yeah. but we can't. But of can't... course, we're being told that this offshore energy is going to, you know, feed into our grid to help households as well. Um, Darren, you know, you heard you heard there from Chris O'Sullivan saying, you know, really that we just need to have a conversation about this, not be calling for moratoriums at this point. Um, why does Sinn Fein so badly want well, uh, a moratorium? Around the around well, data centres, well, we're so tied in. It's a big tech industry here. Well, I think in effect we we have a moratorium in practice because we've, through the failure of successive governments, failed to manage our energy system. So we've done incredibly well rolling out the red carpet to data centres, and and I hear the arguments in terms of the the the, the need for them. Uh, I think there's a legitimate question. You know, how many of them do we need? What's our fair share? You know, how much is is enough? Um, done a very successful job in terms of, of rolling the, the carpet out for, the, for data centres and the demand. But on the supply side, on the generation capacity, we've failed miserably. And the, the, the regulatory authorities, the responsible authorities, and that's why we have the situation with Amber Alerts and we don't have the generation capacity. We have the added complication, and I think there is very serious consideration has been given to the idea of island and data centres that aren't run on renewable energy, instead are run, run on natural gas. We've got 11 of them uh, contracted to, to go onto the gas grid, and that has very serious implications in terms of the energy system, in terms of our carbon emissions, and also in terms of the, the, the environmental and economic impact of it. Okay, um, Alan, you, you know, we're all talking, not may, maybe as experts in this area around uh, data centres, but certainly you, you work you work in a data centre or you work uh, um, as, um, in, in managing it in the sector. Do people understand truly how they work, do you believe? No, sadly not. Um, I mean, everybody uses data centres now in every part of their lives, from picking up the phone to, you know, communicating to working remotely. We have so many people now who can work from home. That's thanks to data centres, you know. We have people who don't need to make travel um, to have meetings. That's all thanks to data centres. Ireland is a great, great place for data centres. Our climate, we had the hottest day of the year so far today. It was only 29 degrees. It seems high to us. When it comes to data centres, it's not. So, you know, it, these data centres are going to be built 
we might as well have them in Ireland where we can grow our tech sector and emissions from the data centres in Ireland will be less than in many, many countries. You put a data centre in California, it's going to generate far more emissions. We just have to ramp up the renewable. The supply is the problem. Even yesterday on a cloudy day, my own solar panels, I didn't need to use any of the grid until 9pm. On a cloudy day. Okay, Today, well, I was what able are to data centres doing? Because they're not, they're not generating their own electricity. They, they absolutely can, though. So but that's, why aren't they? Well, so a lot of the new ones will be investing in renewables to be able to generate from renewables. But the other thing that often is said is that people won't be able to cook their dinner or boil their kettle while the data centre stays on. That's not true. They all have backup generators. So if the Amber Alert comes on the grid and the grid says to the large energy users, you need to stop using electricity, they switch to generators. Mm. You're not going to be not able to buy the kettle at home because of data centres. That's just not going to yeah. happen. If we have a, a case now that we have a certain number of data centres in place, but do you believe there's a need for more? And if there's a need for more, how many can our, our system tolerate? Well, I, I think to be fair, Airgrid are looking at each application on its merits. And there's also expansion of existing data centres. But we have a knowledge economy. We might have 100,000 tech jobs. Every SME in this country used to have a small little server in an office sitting there in the corner. That's now using the cloud. The cloud is the data centres. Every single job in this country pretty much in some way is now reliant on data centres. Okay, so uh, essentially, and, and Harry, what, what do you think of this argument that we are, we are very invested in tech? It is the home of many big tech operations and it comes with the ter territory that we need data centres to store Everything. I think, yeah, Alan makes an important point, and it is important to add that it, what we're doing is not just providing the connectivity for Irish SMEs, but for ones in, elsewhere in the world, that Ireland is a data center center. On the other hand, we're not just helping people to make phone calls and to work from home, et cetera. We're helping AIs to train on big data sets. We're helping surveillance to take place on people. We're helping to drive all the things that we hate about the internet. We're helping to create the tools that are gonna drive people out of their jobs. We're, we're uh, creating those horrible ads that seem to already have thought of what you were about to search for before you've even uh, typed it into your the phone. things yourself. that follow you around so, the internet. And you know, the proportion of the internet that is, and that the energy consumption of the internet that is given over to that kind of training of algorithms, of AIs, and that kind of surveillance capitalism can't be hidden behind this, aren't we also glad that we can uh, talk to our granny with uh, a Skype call? You know, yeah, there Alan, is an awful lot of What do you, what do you say to that, the dark side of data centers that I asked you, like a lot of us don't know what goes on. We don't know what, what we don't really know, do we? Well, I suppose it depends. No, a lot of the time you don't know what happens in data centers. I know we host you know, about a third of the country's websites. If you want to register a domain name in the morning, you come to Black Knight. So anybody at home that has used a website has probably used one of our data centers. So, okay, there are certainly parts of the internet that we don't like, but we're not going to be able to you know, say, well, we can have a data center that maybe allows you to watch your, your TikTok videos, but we don't want the other ones that don't allow you to do, you know, maybe Facebook advertising. So it's very hard to distinguish between that. And I agree with you, you know, there's, there's things on the internet that we all don't want to be there, but it's very hard to kind of try and narrow the view of which data centers you want based on what they do. Okay, it, it's interesting because then the whole issue of regulation and all of that comes into this, that that sense that, you know, once tech is here and they're paying, paying their taxes that we are so incredibly reliant on, that you know they, they have free reign essentially, well, you have and to actually have... a lot of the data isn't even Irish data. It's it's you know gathered from users all over the world. But, but you have stored to, in big centres. You, you have to ask yourself the question: Why is a big, 
big tech here? Why do we have Amazon, TikTok? Why, why are Meta based, based in Ireland? No, it's because we have an incredibly skilled workforce as well. That's one of the reasons. And secondly, these companies are very much driven by sustainability. They have big sustainability ambitions. They want to be able to say that they're net zero. And Ireland in the future will provide which, which that renewable energy. Which begs the question, why are they so slow? Or why is there no push from government to date on having them generate their own, their own power? To be fair, it, it is about supply uh, and we absolutely need to ramp up uh, our renewable generation. 2023, 2024, 2025, they're going to be tricky years, but we are going to see renewable energy come on board. But I think this idea of a moratorium, I mean, if, if Sinn Féin, for example, were in government and Darren became Minister for Energy and he's suggesting moratoriums and well, data centres, I think, I think that, would, I think that would send shockwaves through the tech sector. And it's a tech sector that employs all of our friends. Because of your mismanagement. That, that we know 100,000 people employed in the sector. I think it's a really shocking yeah, well, uh, message. Uh, Darren, bear, bear question. Mind. Would Sinn Féin and government you know, insist on a pause, a ban, no, no, like I would say Sinn Féin and government, we, we wouldn't be where we are if Sinn Féin had been in government. Bear in mind... I know, but I mean, be, no, I, I'm bear, asking bear now, Sinn Féin, in, like, are you, are you advocating a moratorium now or would you... You know, well, there, there, is, there is an effective Welcome. moratorium in place. There is a moratorium. It's, it's done on a case-by-case -case basis. But we heard Simon Coveney, you know, today saying there will be a need for more data centres. Would, would Sinn Féin acknowledge that? No, I, I think it's about managing it. Bear in mind that there is a, a, a state-led review into the failures of successive governments to deliver energy capacity in this state, the McCarthy Report, and I think it's important that, that we see that from, from government. But it's, it's specifically looking at the mismanagement of the, the regulator, the relevant authorities, to deliver generation capacity to power the data centres, to provide the electricity to them. And, and, and I think it's fair to say mm. that if these things cannot be delivered in a sustainable way, and I think it's about regulation and about sustainability, and we hear lots of different things, and I see the government's proposals in terms of actually data centres potentially pay, playing a beneficial role in, in balancing the grid. Um, well, let's see that. But we have no... Uh, we have Successive governments have failed to deliver on that. Instead, what we, what we have is data centres been developer-led, we have data centres been built without tenants, we have data centres been built with direct connections to the gas grid. That is completely unsustainable. That's not a sustainable model and it shouldn't continue. Um, yeah, sustainability coming into all of this. Alan, would you, would you say that there are issues around sustainability and that data centres do need to do more? I mean, judging from those CSO figures, certainly with the amount of energy they're using, it begs the question, are they doing enough at all? Well, I can tell you, Claire, Given the cost increase that we've had in power, we are doing absolutely everything we can to reduce our power consumption because it's been very, very difficult. And how do you do that? Well, you, you get more, basically, you, you, you get run the data centre on as little power as possible by getting servers that use far less. So if you compare a server power consumption to maybe, you know, 15 years ago when I was in IT to what a server can do now and the computing power per you or per space in a data center, it's far, far greater than what it was. So every data center is striving to be more sustainable. I mean, there's, there's planning permission for solar farms in my area for years. Nothing has happened. You know, we've been, we've been talking about solar panels. Why can't we put solar panels on every social house in this country? Reduce their cost of, you know, ESB and allow them to generate and put back into the grid. There's lots of concentration on the problems, but very little concentration on the solutions. Uh, Louise, just, I suppose, to bring the whole windfall tax into the mix as well, um, just as another story that, that was about today and how much that, that could yield for government. Um, there, there might have been an idea that it could get a little bit more than, I, I, they're talking about a 
600 million euro, but when we think of what was paid out to help people with their electricity bills, it was over a billion. Yeah, and I think the issue is we actually don't know how much we're going to get from this windfall energy tax. And we were asking today, inquiring how much we're going to get. And there's still a lot of ambiguity about how much this is going to actually raise. Now, we know Eamon Ryan brought proposals to Cabinet this morning that will separate kind of the windfall tax part of it and then the contribution that they're going to be looking for from the energy companies who are making a lot of money. So we still don't know when that's going to come into into play, to be perfectly honest. And government spokesmen were saying earlier, oh, well, we hope we'll know by the budget and we'll be discussing it in the context of the budget. But I was in the Department of Finance last September when the budget was being announced and we were talking about this windfall tax. And I think there is an acceptance across the board that people are going to need help this winter. And especially if the demand is growing for electricity, the de demand affects costs. So our price is going to rise. We just don't know what the winter is going to bring. And I think there is an acceptance that that money is going to be needed and we might need those one-off costs again. Mm. So I think the government are going to have to put the foot to the floor now and try and get this money from the companies and put it back in people's pockets. Will it be as simple as that? But despite some of the coverage, I actually think this is a good news story. You're talking about anything between 300 million and 600 million to be used to offset uh, the increased costs in energy. That would be used mainly uh, to look after those households that are on lowest incomes, to increase fuel allowance, perhaps looking at something like another energy okay, credit. When are we going to see it? You know, the, the actual timing of that doesn't matter as much as what people are thinking because it still covers the period from December 22 to June 23. So that period remains what? the same, whatever, okay. as long as we have it in before Karen, time, budget no, in October. Timing, timing, doesn't, timing doesn't matter well, well, in this instance. Well, of course it doesn't matter. I, I suppose this, right? this, is a, this is a weak windfall tax from, from, from the government. I suppose it's not, you know, Christopher will say it's about what we're taking in, but actually it's what they're leaving behind. And okay. the original estimates were 1.6 to 1.9 billion euros. Now it's up to 600 million, a very significant difference, and that's because the government had been slow to act. We are out of time. That is it from us. Uh, my thanks to all our panellists tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast. Uh, for now, good night and do take care.